Welcome to Inside Scope, the American Gastroenterological Association podcast that will help you advance your patient care one half hour segment at a time. Join us to hear from the experts, learn new skills, and stay abreast of changing best practices. We'll be tackling a different topic each month, so make sure to subscribe and join us on our mission to improve digestive health for all. Hi, everyone. My name is Christina Ha. I'm the director of the IBD section at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. So this is the third in a series of four case studies where we'll be addressing knowledge gaps in the area of biosimilars and IBD. In the first and second episodes with my colleague, Frank Scott from the University of Colorado, we introduced what biosimilars are and how to counsel the patients and the key stakeholders regarding biosimilars and switching from the reference to the biosimilars. So I'm honored to, to introduce my colleagues who are here with us today. We have Jennifer Seminaro, Deal, who's the director of the IBD Center at the University of South Florida, and Shuba Bhatt, who is an IBD PharmD specialist at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, who has done a lot of work within the biosimilars area. So for today's podcast, we'll be doing a deep dive into the logistics of switching among the various biosimilars and the reference products. We know that many of the healthcare systems and payers have transitioned to biosimilars to infliximab as the preferred agent, and biosimilars to adalimumab are now becoming FDA approved, and we know that more are coming in the horizon for the other mechanisms of action. So Shuba, starting with you, what are some of the practical considerations that you think of for the key stakeholders of the care team that need to be factored in as we're preparing for these changes? And what resources do you recommend for the care team and for the patients? Yeah, so that's an excellent question, Dr. Ha, considering that biosimilars are only becoming more and more prevalent and more integrated into practice. So for in that and in regard to research as the care team or what considerations that the care team should know, first and foremost, becoming educated about the product and the availability of these products is probably the most important step to take. So knowing what products are available, the, the naming of these products, and just knowing knowing how to navigate that space will be critical to making sure that patients are able to successfully transfer over. Um, I would say the next key point then is becoming familiar with the formulary process. So as we become more biosimilars become more available, there's going to be different preferences for the products among the payers. So the care team knowing uh, which preferred product will definitely speed up the transition, making sure that coverage is a lot more seamlessly obtained. And then lastly, just being an available resource for the patient is going to be the most important point as they transition over. So knowing how to help them navigate that space, knowing what resources are available, for example, the copay assistance program, ensuring that they're successfully signed up for that uh, will really go a long way in making sure that the biosimilar adoption is seamless and goes smoothly. In terms of resources available, I definitely recommend the uh, Food and Drug Administration. So they have a great website that is totally dedicated to biosimilars. Everything you need to know about the uh, the products that are available will be available on that website. They also have some resources that you can utilize for patients as well. The Crohn's and Colitis Foundation is also another great resource that I would highly encourage care teams to incorporate into their practice. So it sounds like what you're saying is that the process for authorization and signing patient ups, patients up for the assistance programs that they qualify really is not that different from the biosimilars as they are for the reference product. Would that be fair to say? Yep, that's correct. So the only thing really, honestly, uh, in the biosimilar process is knowing what product the insurance prefers and making sure that the correct prescription or the current, uh, correct treatment plan and making sure that the patients are directed to the right resource because there's different manufacturers for the biosimilars. 
So at the end of the day, it'll come down to knowing what specific product is being prepared for the patient and covered, and then redirecting the patient to that right resource so that they're all signed up appropriately. But yeah, the entire process of prior authorization and copay assistance program does not change. It's just a matter of knowing what product uh, the patient will be on. So that's really reassuring. So it's not really a change in process. It's just actually understanding that there's more options that are available. So with that, Jen, you know, when you have so many different biosimilars available for infliximab and soon adalimumab, you know, sometimes the natural inclination is to think one is better than the other. And how do you address that with your patients or care team? Is one better than the other? Yeah, I mean, and I think it's a great question. Ultimately, we we have to acknowledge that some of this decision-making process is going to be done for us. So the way that, you know, that we'll explain it to patients or that I'll explain it to patients is to let them know that we are using a product and using that generic name, either infliximab or adalimumab when we come to the, the changes in the near future, and that that product may come under some sort of a different company or some sort of a different brand name, but that ultimately they're all versions of the same medication, meaning that you could use every one of them and still get the same effect. And I think portraying it like that uh, sets a lot of the anxiety that goes into, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be on the best drug um, away from, you know, from the patients and puts more of the onus on just the fact that they're still on infliximab and it doesn't matter. I also think it's really important because when we set that stage, when we really make it a question of getting the drug approved and not getting a certain brand name of the drug approved, then we uh, decrease the delays that we may see in treatment time between when we want to start the drug and when they get that first infusion. I agree with you completely. It I kind of is also a shift in practice pattern to away from saying reference product names and really sticking to the mechanism, like what is the product, of the, of the actual structure that we're using to treat the patient. So it's mechanism of action, not brand name. But, you know, Shuba, kind of circling back to you, as Jen had mentioned, there's multiple biosimilars. So how do we navigate this potential of multiple switches from biosimilar to biosimilar? Is that okay? And should that be done? Yeah, so we are having now multiple studies that are coming out looking exactly at this question. And so far, the data that has come out seems to be reassuring. So there doesn't seem to be any worsening outcomes, uh, no increased risk of immunogenicity. So as of right now, based on the preliminary data we have, it seems that multiple switches should be okay. Um, as we know, insurance always mandates the space, so it's more than likely that uh, it will continue to be a trend. Um, what essentially happens on the back end when they decide to formulate a price negotiation, so it's very likely that a payer will go from one biosimilar to another. So again, the reality is that it's probably going to be here to stay, but with which is likely going to continue to happen as we progress forward going we progress forward. But the most important thing, again, is that we don't want any delays or interruptions in treatment. And so ensuring that we're staying on top of it, making sure that patients are transitioning seamlessly is really the key to making sure that we're optimizing outcomes. I completely agree. And the way that I kind of view it, and I tell my team, it's the same the same logic as if we're very confident in the data for reference to biosimilars, understanding the rigorous FDA approval process in order to get biosimilars to the market, that we should use that same logic to go from one biosimilar to another biosimilar. Because at the end of the day, it's infliximab. And Shiva, you mentioned this many times before, and Frank mentioned this in the last two podcasts, that even the versions of the original infliximab vary 
varied from batch to batch. So to a certain degree, there have always been inconsequential differences in the, but at the end of the day, the heart of the product is still the same. And with that, you know, Jen, let's talk about reality. You know, you're coming into work, you get a notice from the insurance company or the healthcare system that in a month, they're just going to do a blanket switch to a biosimilar. So you have a bustling IBD practice. What is the realistic and pragmatic approach to really informing the patients that their quality of care and their uh, style of care is not going to be compromised? Some of this is how we do it from the get-go, but the, the reality, as you said, is that a lot of times in practice, we'll have somebody who's already started on something before we meet them or before we get to know them. I think for new starts, we really set the stage that this is in Fliximab and that there may be changes along the way. And that if that happens, we want to get on top of it very quickly. And we want to make sure that the payers are giving us the information that we need and that we're giving them back what they need, that we're getting in contact with the correct infusion center and so on and so forth. I think for somebody that's already been on brand name or one alternative biosimilar and then needs to make a switch, the the pragmatic approach can be different amongst centers. But ultimately, when you're dealing with a busy practice, you may not be able to meet with every single person individually. And I think you really just have to take into consideration which patient you're dealing with or which patient personality subtype. There are certainly going to be patients out there that are going to want an appointment. And, you know, working with your entire team, getting them on the schedule as quickly as possible to have a conversation about what this means, addressing their concerns and taking it seriously, I think is the best approach to avoid delays that could happen if they aren't understanding of what's happening and they don't know. And then ultimately they don't follow through. I think that for other patients, it may be as simple as sending them a message. Hey, we just want to let you know that the payer has given us a new biosimilar that they want us to use and that we're going to make this switch. It doesn't result in any changes in your care or the timeline of your care. And that may be simply all they need. And then yet others may fall in the middle where they don't want an appointment, but a message may be not enough. And it just requires a quick phone call from one of your care team members, whether or not you have a prior authorization specialist, whether or not you have a PharmD, a nurse practitioner, a physician's assistant, or you yourself or one of your nurses, um, a quick phone call to just reassure them. And I think that when you do this approach, it's really about staying calm, not showing that any of this even bothers you, being very nonchalant about it. And, and just like we were talking about, ensuring that they know the correct patient assistance program to then get involved in so that that doesn't delay their approval or their ability to get it covered. And I think that making sure that they know this is the web Website that they need to go to. This is how you get signed up for said patient assistance program. And then just again, in making sure that you really dot your T's and mark and, and or cross your T's and dot your I's and make sure that there is no delay uh, because of this conversation that, that the patient is agreeable to moving forward with the biosimilar with the understanding that it is not changing their care whatsoever. No, I completely agree. I think that investment in time early actually has a downstream cost savings and time savings in the future. But Shuba, you know, Cleveland Clinic has had to do this. So are there any additional um, tips that you have in the approach that Cleveland Clinic took? Yes, I think it's really important to assign a biosimilar champion. So have that one go-to person that like really knows the ins and outs of that biosimilar that can really save us a resource. And then really navigating or really rather utilizing all the team members that you have. So getting your infusion nurses up to speed, getting your regular nurses, your physician assistants, your pharmacists. So getting everyone that's involved in some capacity of this biosimilar transition or adoption 
getting them on board to that, there's going to be multiple touch points where a patient might actually uh, potentially be engaged in. And so really providing that education up front and then providing reassurance throughout the process can really go a long way in ensuring that there's successful uh, implementation. So, you know, in the last few minutes that we have left or class couple minutes, you know, Jen, I wanted to ask you and then we'll get Shuba's opinion. Are there scenarios, let's say a patient has already made one switch from a reference to a biosimilar and now their formulary changed to another biosimilar. Are there scenarios where you say, no, we don't want to switch again? Or when is it worth or not worth appealing to the insurance company knowing that you're likely not going to be successful? Yeah, I mean, I think the the short answer is that the majority of the time you really should just go ahead and make the switch because it's it's going to be ultimately what they are going to get approved it's going to minimize delays i think that when you're dealing with certain scenarios and some of the ones that come into clinical practice may be if you have somebody in the middle of induction where the timing isn't going to be correct or you know even potentially beyond those in induction those where you haven't had a lot of time to determine what your dosing or your frequency is going to be. Those may be some indications. And then I think the only other one is that there there has been case reports, there has been studies that have shown that there are patients out there who have made the switch and maybe not done as well. And in those circumstances where they've either had an adverse effect or, you know, they're not tolerating, um, then certainly you could appeal back to the insurance company for brand and see if you can get it approved after a failure. So Shuba, in your experience, how successful are we in getting these appeals covered with respect to delays? Because I worry adalimumab weekly or every two week dosing, infliximab, you know, it could be as short as every four weeks. Are we compromising care by trying to seek appeals? No, most scenarios, yes, where we know that the that the switch is totally appropriate. Um, again, in that case, it's probably hard to come up with a clinical panel argument, if you will, especially given that we have the data and evidence to support that biosimilar switching is totally effective and safe. So, yeah, it's probably hard to generally deny or, or reverse the denials, if you will. Um, so, in that case, it's really the best. Uh, approach would be to really push over. I just want to emphasize the one time where another scenario where it might not be appropriate to switch is that if you have a patient that's potentially flaring. So in that case, the emphasis should really be on drug optimization. And so really trying to make sure that we're getting them on a stable regimen would be the most ideal case. And sometimes insurance will allow for a few weeks to start. They'll just say, okay, we understand. We'll give you a few weeks to kind of figure it out, get the patient on a stable dose. And then at that point, we do want them to switch over to a bio Yeah. Well, you know, with that, we're all out of time. But so I'd like to say thank you so much to Jen and Shuba for your expert opinion. And um, just also to thank our sponsors. This podcast was supported by educational support from Amgen and Pfizer. And there's plenty of resources available, as was discussed earlier. But I'd like to encourage everyone to check out the AGA Biosimilars page for providers and patients at the agau.gastro.org site. And tune in for our next and final podcast in this series with Shuba and Miguel Reguero from the Cleveland Clinic, and we'll be delving into some of these strategies a little bit more. So thank you both so much, and we appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Inside Scope, an official AGA podcast. Make sure to subscribe to be notified as we roll out new episodes. For more GI education, visit AGA University at agau.gastro.org.